Hello, good day, and welcome to Party in China, Series 2, Episode 19. I'm Party Parslow, and this episode begins with my second attempt at having a second government-mandated medical examination. What fun! Although hating the idea of suffering through another physical checkup at the hands of white-coated sadists, I didn't mind the thought of spending another day with pretty Betty. But the next morning at 7.28, when I was walking downstairs without breaking my fast or even drinking a glass of water, it was Amy who rang me, telling me that I was late and asking where I was. I was on bloody time. That's where I was, Amy. Our new driver was polite, drove well by local standards, although rarely in the correct gear, and unfortunately wanted to chat to the foreigner. I replied to whatever he was saying with phrases I'd recently learnt, such as, Menu Zhang Dan, Waitress, Bill please, and Wu Shi Huan Pu Tao. I like grapes. Both Amy and he found that very amusing. The day before, when we were dropped off outside the headmaster's apartment building, he hadn't been expecting us. This time, it was unclear whether he even knew we were coming or not, as he wasn't home. So Amy made a couple of phone calls and we waited for around another hour or more. It felt much longer than yesterday's hour wait with Betty until the headmaster's wife came to get us, but not the headmaster who lived in the building where we waited. This was the other headmaster's wife. I recognised her as the same lady who had driven me to the police station to register my existence on my first or second day in Ganyu. So we were old pals. Incidentally, when Mr Wong took me to the cop shop in Diang, everything had been very official and serious. In Ganyu, we'd walked into a much smaller building with one chubby sergeant, who'd laughed delightedly at the sight of me, had Summer take a photo of us shaking hands, thrown the paperwork on his desk and ushered us out with body language saying, don't worry about all that nonsense. A much nicer experience. Amy, the headmaster's wife and I drove to the hospital, with me giving directions, which felt strange, but I was the only one who'd ever been there before. And this time, they had electricity. Just like a real hospital. I was presented to a bald, bespectacled, uniformed clerk, and Amy presented him with my passport and the couple of passport-sized photos I'd been told to bring with me. When he opened my passport and picked up some weird-looking serrated shears, I thought he was about to vandalise my most important possession and started to protest. But he just used the weird shears to hold the photo page open on his desk. You know, the weird shears is a good name for a band. Leaning down close to my passport, those spectacles mustn't have been doing a good job, he scrutinised my photo and then applied the same penetrating gaze to my face. And then again. And then once more. And then once more. I suppose we must all look the same to him. 
He then took my picture with a webcam and started the same comparative scrutiny, but this time he had three things to stare at. Seeing my image appear on his computer screen, I took back the two passport photos, but no, oh no, no, no. He wanted them too. Okay, fine. Next, he took one of my photos, picked up the weird shears, still a good name for a band, and cut it in half, whereupon he grunted and Amy translated the following. Do you have another photo? No. Why not? Because I was told to bring two. You have to come back again tomorrow with another photo. No. I brought two photos. This knobhead cut one in half. He can stick that one back together again. Or, as he hasn't destroyed both yet, tell him to scan the other one, or photocopy it, or use the digital photo he just took. Or, he can take another one. He can take ten more photos, if that helps. But I was here yesterday, and I'm here today, and I'm not coming back to bloody morrow. I'm sure Amy didn't translate all of that. I'm sure she didn't understand all of that. But after further negotiation and an impressive display of her persuasive feminine charm, he allowed himself to be convinced to let me proceed. My last medical in Chengdu had been a nightmare. Now, I won't say this was a dream, but instead of thousands of patients, there were only half a dozen of us going from room to room, passing each other in the corridors with the other ones always neat and tidy and me in various degrees of nudity because the others didn't have Amy rushing them along so they could take the time to get dressed again after each examination. Actually, since Amy had been given several chances to see me half naked, I explained the phrase tit for tat to her, but she pretended not to understand. Various lab coat types measured my height and weight, shone lights in my mouth, my nose, my ears, tested my eyesight and hearing. One woman stabbed me in the liver and kidneys with some sort of blunt truncheon, which I assume was an ultrasound. My blood pressure read high again. In the car, I'd explained white coat syndrome to Amy, and she translated that for the doctor who looked skeptical. See, the problem is that my blood pressure goes up whenever someone takes my blood pressure. I once had to wear a device for, I think, 48 hours, which took readings randomly. It was cumbersome and uncomfortable. I remember trying to convince a voluptuous redhead in a pub that I needed her to get me very excited in the pursuit of potentially life-saving medical research. She laughed and told me she was a nurse and to piss off. But those readings had shown that as long as I was nowhere near a sphygmomanometer, I think that's right, I was fine. Although there was a spike when I was chatting up the red-headed nurse. When it came to the urine sample, I was given a very, very small test tube and Amy translated the instruction to fill it halfway up. But I doubted I had either the aim or the flow control to fulfil that order. Then they also handed me a small plastic pouring cup, 
and I divined that I was to fill that and then use that to half fill the tube. Amy left me alone at last at the door of the gents. Inside, the place was festooned with pouring cups half full of patient pee. I mean, the pee wasn't patient, the pee came out of patience. Several places to discard these cups were clearly marked, so this was either nauseating laziness or some scheme for people to swap urine samples. I nearly used someone else's just to see what would happen, but I'd probably have chosen someone with AIDS or bird flu and been deported. The whole thing only took about an hour. Yay! And as I was starving and dehydrated, I expected to go somewhere for the ham and egg breakfast which Summer had promised me if I was a good boy and didn't eat or drink anything overnight. Chinese seem to think all Westerners eat ham and eggs for breakfast. When, oh when, would I learn to throttle expectation? Amy took me to a biscuit shop. It was a nice big biscuit shop with many, many biscuits. I, of course, had no idea what any of the biscuits were or what they taste like, and the few with packaging I could read did not sound anywhere near as appetising as the promised ham and eggs. But turning down the next aisle, I was happily confronted with several brands of German beer. I knew Kaiser King and I knew that I liked it, but I also bought a couple of untried brands. Two horses at 8.5%, a little bit strong, and three horses at 12%. Now we're talking. Slightly mollified that the biscuit shop hadn't been a complete dud after all, I threw a packet of crisps in the basket, paid and left. The car had only gone a few feet when we were cut off by a grey VW Golf station wagon, which U-turned dramatically and half-mounted the pavement in front of us. Rather than a road rage incident or a kidnap attempt, this was headmaster number one, the one who was supposed to meet us, come to take us back to the school, despite the fact that headmaster number two's wife had driven from wherever she lived to pick us up at headmaster number one's. She'd taken us to the hospital and she was already in the process of taking us home again. But we abandoned her, swapped vehicles and immediately accelerated off the pavement and straight into oncoming traffic. He didn't even try to get onto the correct side of the road. I just shut my eyes and ate my crisps. No point in dying hungry. On the way, Amy told Headmaster Number One that he needed to bring another of my passport photos back to Mr Weirdshears at the hospital the next day. Turned out that was the compromise she'd struck, but wisely hadn't told me at the time. So when we got back to the school, I popped up to my flat, got the last two passport photos and gave him both, in case one was accidentally bisected once more. Then as I turned to leave, Summer asked me where I was going. I thought that I'd already missed that day's classes, but she'd rescheduled them all for me, one after the other, right through the afternoon and evening. So that was good. Summer had been promising more foreign teachers since the day I arrived, and they arrived 
through September and October. At first, since Aston forced me to teach at the despicable Ganyu Foreign Language School, they'd had to conscript a couple of other foreigners from the Singpu branch. Flo was a Frenchman with very good English, but quite a strong accent. If you ever meet a young Chinese who sounds like Gerard Depardieu, ask her if she remembers Flo. There was also an American Indian. Not a Native American, an Indian from Nashville. His English was probably excellent, but I can't be certain as I could hardly understand him. For instance, I still don't know if his name was Vicky or Wiki. Chinese have no V sound in their language, so they have terrible trouble with Vs and Ws. Seemed I spent half my teaching going VV, VV, which is pretty funny when 50 kids do it back at you. So asking them to say a V word, it's like the old joke about two blokes. One says, is it Hawaii or Hawaii? And the other one says, it's Hawaii. Thank you. You're welcome. Neither Flo or Vicky Wiki lasted very long, a few weeks perhaps. I heard that Flo had left suddenly after some kid at the Ganyu Foreign Language School told him to go f*** his mother, and he'd smashed the blackboard in a rage. I remember thinking I'd probably have the same reaction if some kid said that to me, but as it turned out, my response was to be much worse. Wiki Wiki just sort of disappeared. His replacement subcontinental was from Bradford in Northern England and combined that Northern British drawl with a Pakistani sing-song, an unusual combination which left me bewildered. His name was Minear. I hope that's right. His accent was so strong I couldn't even understand it when he spilled it for me. He was a Muslim so faced a daily challenge with the local cuisine. Pork was ubiquitous, and many other ingredients were unidentified, but almost certainly not halal. Manny, we had to call Manir something we could say, shared a flat with Sean, a near-albino from Seattle, who looked like a strung-out extra from the Norwegian version of The Wire. In fact, whenever we all went out together, some concerned local would ask Betty or Ronna if he was a drug dealer. Invariably in a beanie, usually with a cigarette dangling from his lips and with an almost continuous attitude of confused indolence, Sean drew awed looks from both parents and students alike. In an outrageous coincidence, Irish John's new colleague, Jim, tall, lanky, big-eared bloke, also came from Seattle. They were both in their mid-twenties, they knew the same places, bars and bands, but they never knew each other, until rendezvousing on the other side of the world. I did form the impression, however, that Sean was the type of kid who Jim wouldn't have been allowed to play with. The final piece of our faculty jigsaw arrived a few weeks later. Natalie, a South African, was a very welcome female. Intelligent, interesting, a bit mad. Well, naturally, the poor girl had to share a flat with Sean and Manny. As soon as Nat arrived, Ronna more or less dumped me and devoted her guiding energies to arranging outings for manicures, pedicures, nail painting, facials, hairdressers. Outings to which I, 
in an act of overt sexism, was not invited. Sean had been the first to arrive, and within a week, I was telling everyone that I'd been hornswoggled by a damn Yankee. My favourite class was C9, 16-year-olds who'd learnt English for nine years already, so they could actually talk to me. Unfortunately, some of them wouldn't talk to me and just sat there, heads down, staring into their textbooks. A common manifestation of their much greater confidence in their English writing abilities rather than English speaking. And an attitude they'd probably get away with in a class of 60 or more, but in my class of 8 or 10, I saw it as dumb insolence and combated it by startling them with a loud scream or sudden threatening physical movement, followed by sympathy and support. I called it shock and awe. One of them, Lucy, a petite, studious young woman whom I honestly thought liked me, complained behind my back that I scared her. So my favourite class was reassigned to Sean. I was, instead, condemned to kindergarten, where there were no lesson plans and I'd seen Incy Wincy Spider for up to an hour at a time. Incy Wincy was a huge hit, as the kids and parents quickly absorbed the tune and the actions, if not the words. Summer later asked me to instruct the Chinese teachers in the intricacies of Incy Wincy and congratulated me on inventing it. Still to come on Party in China, my metastasizing madness manifests in new and interesting ways, including a fight to the death with a chicken. I'm Party Parslow. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Party in China. For more, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Subscribe to the podcast at Audio Boom, Stitcher, iTunes, or your favorite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.